here in the United States, we see on television, like we'll watch India or we'll watch Africa, National Geographic, perhaps, or commercials. And they always portray like sadness. It's like, oh, they're, they're sad and the kids are crying and there's flies all over their face and they're starving. And you can see the ribs and the, even the dogs look like they're walking skeletons, right? They Like they portray like the saddest, saddest situation. Like, oh man, that is awful. So when you're going over there for the first time, you're already having in your mind, like, man, I'm going to feel like miserable here because these people are just so sad and I'm going to feel like I'm helpless and I can't help them all. And then you get there and you realize like, those people over there in the airport, they're telling jokes and like laughing and dancing around and kids are running around playing with toys. And, you know, they're not rich either, but they're, they're, they're being humans. They're, they're happy. You know, they're not, they're not rich They're broke as it all gets, but they find joy in what they know because that's the only life they know. So they're like, you can either be sad about it or you can be happy about it. And most people I think choose happiness regardless of where they're at. So that was my big discovery after being there. And anybody that's gone to those countries like India and Africa and some of the other ones like South America, Central America, you realize that people are people are people regardless of how much money they have. All right. Oh, welcome, everyone. This is the beginning of the new chapter in my life. And I am super, super excited to share this chapter, starting with none other than Mr. Tony Watley. I have known Tony for a few months now, four or five months. I saw Tony, I saw you first time in one of the after Arte group call. And, and I didn't know, like, uh, I saw that when people started to talk to you, uh, they were thanking you. I didn't know then, but I knew the way people started to talk to you, that there was something special about you then. And we spoke a little bit and then we connected over uh, uh, the webinar that you were doing and then through the social. And I'm, I'm just so grateful because, you know, there are so many examples of people building successful businesses, but there are the examples of authentic people, the People who are real leadership and people who stand for something are very rare and you are one of them. I see you and this is why I reached out to you and I'm really excited. I know this is going to be an awesome conversation. So welcome. Hey, thank you for this opportunity, man. I'm, I'm excited to see this change. And I know you've been doing personal development for a, a while. This is kind of out of your comfort zone, and but that's how we grow. That's how we improve, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. So we'll start with right from your... Um, you know, childhood as that's where the, so, you know, seeds have been sown, like changes happen. So if you talk about your childhood, how you grew and your journey, a little bit of background about that, and we'll take it from there. I was born in Japan and my dad was a Vietnam veteran for the U.S. Marines, he's a combat vet, and my mom is Japanese. Mm. And we moved to California when I was, I think, one year old, and we were at a, a Camp Pendleton down there. And then we moved to Texas shortly after that. So I grew up in Texas. The only thing I ever remember is Texas. <laughs> and I, a Houston area resident my entire life, oil capital of the world. And it was tough. You know, my parents were, were very blue-collar workers. My mom worked in the public schools as a cafeteria worker serving food to kids. And my dad, after the military, worked in the chemical refineries as construction. So I got to see the value of hard work. And the houses that I grew up in were basically the the crappiest house on the crappiest street in the crappiest neighborhood, but it had a good school district. 
So my parents, especially my mom, always valued education. So they moved to a city that was a little bit more expensive to live in because they wanted a good school system for my sister and I. And so in order to make that happen, we had to live in the houses that were basically flip houses. We would restore them and paint them and make them look nice. And my mom loves doing gardening and, and real, you know, landscaping. So we would start out with a really crappy house and it was ugly colors and terrible carpets and just, just awful. But that was normal for me. That was the first three houses I lived in were basically like that, just a little bit bigger each time because we were growing. Yeah. And I got to see that if you wanted to create something for yourself, if you wanted to value what you had, even if you had very little, that not everything is disposable in society, that you can actually improve things and repair things and restore things. And that's who I am. And that's even a skill that I started to even realize with other people. I have a pretty good, I'd say it's a skill or, or a talent of seeing opportunity and potential within other people that they may not necessarily see for themselves. And I've always been that way. Cause even if I look back at my childhood, I, I always remember seeing some of my friends that could be doing better or they just push a little harder. They would get a lot better result. And I was always encouraging them to do that or teaching them to do that or inspiring them to do that. And honestly, it became a point of contention. It became a little frustrating in my early adult years because I felt like I was giving good advice with good intent and then not everybody takes your advice yeah, And so therefore they keep failing or they keep in that same victim mindset and that same pity party and everything else to blame besides them. And, and it started frustrating me because I started taking that person. I was like, why do I keep giving all this good advice? And they don't listen, but <laughs> you know, with maturity and wisdom, like later on, what I realized is that you can't help people that don't want to help themselves. True. They have to raise their hand and be willing to help themselves first. They have to want change for themselves more than you want change for them as a mentor or a coach. Mm. So I really started to be more focused on serving the people that actually want to change and actually want to improve because otherwise you're just wasting your effort. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Right. So, you know, I would say lower middle-class upbringing, we didn't have a lot of money. So I was mowing yards, knocking doors, raking leaves, walking dogs, washing cars, painting houses, like anything I could to make money. And that's, how I was able to buy the things I wanted as a kid, you know, bicycles and skateboards and video games and being able to play sports. So mm. I had to go figure that out. My parents luckily were very supportive of that. They said, Hey, if you want something, go figure it out and we'll support you. Then. So mm. yeah, that's what I did, man. Awesome. And I, I, I can relate. I think uh, coming from a, you know, lower middle class or then middle, middle class uh, family, I grew up in India and, you know, I could relate to the challenges. And I, I think, you know, when you come from those having, I don't want to say nothing, but having like lower resources, it just yeah. wires you differently. Mm -hmm. You, uh, so, and you know, you sometimes can get wired where you get stuck with job, which was my case, but also you can start looking at becoming more resourceful, which was your case. So as your father comes from the, well, you mentioned Marine background, were there strict rules like, you know, army rules or Marine rules? And if they help you shape some of your, um, you know, mindset, uh, would you talk about that? Yeah, I definitely had very disciplinarian parents on both regards. My mom valued education more than most people because as a Japanese woman, 
women didn't go to school beyond junior high in her era, baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And after junior high education, women were removed from the school system unless they were rich and they had to go work in the farms. And the boys got to continue and go through what we would call high school education here. And so she always like envied the boys and how they got to do that. And she didn't get to do that. So when we came to the States, that's one of the reasons we wanted to move to a good school system. And I never missed a single day of school from kindergarten through graduation. I had 13 years of perfect attendance. Wow. Because unless I was dead or dying, (laughs) I was going to get on the bus because my parents both worked also. So there was nobody home to watch us when we were kids. So like Mm. you're going to get on the bus and you're going to go to school. I don't care if you're sniffles. I I don't care if you don't feel good. I don't care if there's a bully, like you're getting on the bus and And I think that I probably resented that maybe early in my childhood because I see some of my other friends skipping class and having a little bit more freedom in that regard. And I thought that maybe that's what I wanted. But I think after maybe five years in, when I started to get these perfect attendance awards, they give you these little awards for perfect Mm -hmm. attendance. It did something different for me. It started to define who I believed who I am. Right. Mm -hmm. Good for Mm -hmm. a good reason. You know, Mm-hmm. So I said, wow, if I can just show up every day and be disciplined and do the right things and I get recognized for that. And if I can be identifying myself as someone with perfect attendance, why don't I just try to see if I can do this all the way? So I actually started to adopt that and I just would feel like skipping. Right. I enjoyed school. School was really easy for me. Right. Mm-hmm. I had friends there. I've made straight A's. I did all the, the good things in school. But yeah, so the discipline in school and education, definitely my mom. I was the first one in my family to go to college on both sides of the family. And I put myself through college. I waited tables and I worked construction just like my dad did after I got out of high school. And it took Mm. me seven years to get an engineering degree because I was going, working full time outside and going to school at nighttime. Mm. My dad, the disciplinarian was all the, the military things. Like you said, it was the yes, sir, no, sir, respect, honor, being on time, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Uh, Don't back down from bullies, but don't start fights, but don't be afraid to finish fights. Right. And so a lot of these ideals are still very strong with my, my, my upbringing. I'm I'm very patriotic. I enjoy the freedoms that him and millions of other soldiers have risked their lives to go get for our country. And I don't like when people try to take away from things that I've created for myself because I have had to work really hard to get where I'm at. Yeah. 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 And I, I I can relate with the, strict rules and parents and especially you know in that era if you're uh, i mean i think it's generally when we don't get something in our lives that we strive to get we want that for our children like we want to get it easy for our children so i i relate that and you know being strict uh parents with the education and uh i was not a studious student like uh I think till the third grade I was, and then I started to uh, fall off. And I never thought like uh, uh, education was something because it may be because the strictness of my parents I resented that I didn't want to learn. And I had this belief uh, that, you know, I could do it without the education. And for to some extent, I think because of that belief and not, you know, I never went to college and I never had engineering, but I still got into IT services and did well. And it was just because I had this false belief that, okay, watch me kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, I kept improving the other areas. I kept filling holes with the other things. So that's uh, amazing. Were you more closer to one parent to the another? Like if you, <laughs> you know, when my father said no, it was no. So I had to go through my mother all the time to get him to say yes. Yeah, we're, we're the same in that regard. I was, my mom was easier to, to get in, encouragement or advice or empathy or love from dad was always pretty tough. And, you know, he had a hard job and we, I just remember avoiding my dad for the most part, you know, for several reasons. I learned a lot of good things from him and a lot of bad things from that. I just decided I didn't want to be when I grew up. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think in our generations, like we, most of us had that kind of relation because our Fathers didn't know how to be expressive and show their love. I mean, even yeah. like my father was not like, uh, you know, it wasn't like he was abusive, but it was just like there was always this curtain or a veil. It was never fully there uh, kind of thing. I mean, uh, he loved me. I mean, he still loves me. I know that, but <laughs> it was not expressive. He's more expressive now that he has grandchildren. Yeah, they soften up. They soften up, especially when the grandkids come around. But mm. yeah, he, he had a hard life. He didn't like the career that he had. And, you know, he had bad days most days. And you just avoided him when he came home from work until he had a shower and was sitting at the dinner table and he could unwind and had a really short temper and got angry a lot of times and yelled. And I just, I remember as a kid watching this, this is good for the listeners. It's like, mm. You look at, it, especially boys, and you're looking at your dad's your father figure, and you're asking yourself, "Is that what it takes to be a man? Mm. Do I need to hate my job? Do I need to be angry at my family when I come home because I hate my job? Do I need to yell? Mm. Do I need to honk the horn and road rage? Do I need to do all these things to be a man? Is that what it takes to be a man? Because that's your example, right? Yeah. And even then, I knew that I don't want to be like that. That's not who I am. I will make a conscious effort not to do that stuff. And mm. for the most part, that's really what dictated my life. I, there's a lot of good things you learn from parents, a lot of bad things, but yeah. you should never say, well, I'm like this because my father's like that. Like if it's a bad thing, like you should never use that as an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. So true. My father used to tell us, uh, uh, growing that, you know, uh, that take my good habits. Don't just, you know, he had his limitation, his bad habits and he knew it. And he would tell us, don't learn my bad habits. I cannot change, but you know, you make sure you don't adapt. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is that, you know, the things that I didn't like about my father or whatever I resented then being a child, whether it was discipline, whether it's not having enough money to do whatever you wanted. Um, I, I, I can see that now as now that I'm a father, I can see that how tough was, you know, it on him. And, and the interesting thing I learned is after having my son or my children is that how much was thinking was that how much my children are like me, like who I was as a child, but then how much of my father is in me. Like sometimes in the sports of moment that angers come like, and I've like, I told myself that I will not be that person, but it happens like it's just somehow gets wired and you have to, like you said, become conscious about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all awareness. So. <laughs> Uh, I also heard uh, in one of your interviews that you mentioned that you, as a kid, you were a happy kid, uh, even though, you know, there were uh, resources were not available, you still enjoy it. And 
do you think by any chance that because you were happy that energy always created more resources, like it kept you going and finding those resources to make it happen? Absolutely. I think that humans put off an unseen energy that could still be sensed by their humans and animals. And mm. a good example of that is maybe, maybe you've been in a social setting. Maybe a friend of yours is having a house party and they have a dog, right? And the dog's really social. The dog's wagging his tail. It's visiting people. It's getting pet and it's enjoying all the people there and the intention. And then somebody walks in the front door on the other side of the house and that dog just starts to get in defensive mode and feel angry and starts growling. And you're like, whoa, what's wrong with this dog? And mm. he's looking at that person. He may not even know who that person is, but he could sense like there's something wrong with that individual. So there's this yeah. unfelt, unobvious sense that we all have. And we call it our gut feel, our instinct when we meet people, right? Yeah. So we think that everybody, we always give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, they're, they're probably a good person. They're probably this, they're probably that. We always want to believe that everybody in the world is good, but we know evil exists. And we know that negative people and put off a negative energy exists. Animals are good at sensing it and reacting to it. Humans react to it, but we don't, we don't like acknowledge it. We're like, oh, there's something wrong with this person, but I'm just going to be nice and polite. And you know, it's like, so yeah, your positive energy is what people will sense when you walk into a room, right? If you can set that intention, every time I walk through a door, who am I going to be when I get on the other side of that door? Am I going to be the positive person putting out the right energy or am I going to be in there just you know, judgmental and criticizing and focusing on negativity and, you know, like all that stuff? Because that's the thing that we, we put out. You know, we, we attract what we put out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, but I was always happy. My parents always tried to provide things for us and, and to be honest, I didn't know that we didn't have money. I mean, if that's all you know, that's just life. That's just how it is. And, and you know, we had government supplied cheese and, and food and stuff like that in some some situations where my parents were not making enough money. And we didn't make fun of that or knew that it was like wrong. I mean, we just thought that this is this is normal, right? This is how we live. Like, okay, it's it's a little bit nicer than someone that's living on a dirt floor, but you know, we're not rich by any means. So I think that like you said earlier, we become resourceful, we become creative, we learn that life and products and items are not disposable that can be restored. So you can see that there's potential in all these different things. If you're just a little creative and resourceful, can do things to, to keep things going, right? And yeah. that applies to anything in life, like relationships. Like a lot of people look at the relationships are too disposable nowadays. You know, they don't try to repair what they have. Mm-hmm. They try to discard it and find something shiny and new. And that doesn't work either because they haven't figured out how to fight for what they believe in and like try to make things work. They don't understand these kind of things. So yeah, your energy, your happiness. I, and, and, and you tell me you grew up in India, right? Yeah. Third world country. I've, I've spent a lot of time working in Africa, several months. And one of the biggest perspective changes of going to some place like India or Africa is that you realize that happiness has nothing to do with financials. Yeah, because here in the United States, it's literally like living in a bubble. Like we really live in an affluent community and a really nice neighborhood because I can afford to do that. But technically, I live in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble within a bubble. Like if you're just looking at it from the 10,000 foot view. When I go to Africa or I'm working somewhere, I visit a third world country. That bubble's no longer there. And 
you think that the things that you own materialistically or your neighborhood, your cars or all these things like make you happy. But I always knew they didn't because I was happy when I was broke. So I always knew this. Mm. But here in the United States, we see on television, like we'll watch India or we'll watch Africa, National Geographic, perhaps, or commercials. And they always portray like sadness. It's like, oh, they're, they're sad and the kids are crying and there's flies all over their face and they're starving. And you can see the ribs and the, even the dogs look like they're walking skeletons, right? They Like they portray yeah. like saddest, saddest situation. Like, oh, man, that is awful. So when you're going over there for the first time, you're already having in your mind like, and I'm going to feel like miserable here because these people are just so sad and I'm going to feel like I'm helpless and I can't help them all. And then you get there and you realize like hey, those people over there in the airport, they're telling jokes and like laughing and dancing around and kids are running around playing with toys and, you know, they're not rich either, but they're, they're, they're being humans. They're, they're happy. You know, they're not, they're not rich. They're broke as it all gets, but they find joy in what they know because that's the only life they know. So they're like, you can either be sad about it or you can be happy about it. And mm. most people, I think, choose happiness regardless of where they're at. So that was my big discovery after being there. And anybody that's gone to those countries like India and Africa and some of the other ones like South America, Central America, you realize that people are people are people regardless of how much money they have. And we all know highly successful, high net worth people who are miserable and suicidal and lonely. So the money didn't solve that problem either. Yeah, that is so true. And I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of uh, time people just focus. I mean, it's going back to your point, like not knowing, not knowing what else is out there sometimes also is a way to happiness and contention. Like, um, yes, you need to strive. Yes, you need to have big goals, but there's no end to that. Like you have to be happy. And this is something I'm learning now. I, Chase, uh, money and promotions all my life. And it's never ending. It's, you know, uh, at some point you have to say, okay, I'm going to be happy if I get there. In fact, I remember when I first moved to us, I moved to us in, uh, uh, uh in August, 2001, I was there. And, uh, a month later, nine 11 happened. The company I moved through, uh, went bubble up. So I didn't have job and I started working at, uh, gas station pumping gas. And, but I, when I look back, I was so much happier. Like it was, I was having joy filling gas. Um, in New Jersey, you had to give full service, cleaning those windshields. And I was just enjoying because for me, it was freedom. Like I was out of India. I was making money. I could eat McDonald's every day, <laughs> which didn't, mm-hmm. you know, so my dreams were very small. Uh, and, and that's, I, I think, uh, it is amazing when you have, uh, when you look life, uh, at what is it giving and just accept it and be happy in that. So amazing. Um, and then, uh, you know, um, talk us through your journey into getting your first job and then, you know, starting which your side hustle, which is what you're known for a lot. That's funny. My very first job was age 15. I actually worked at McDonald's like you just mm. mentioned. So it's kind of funny. I'd, and while most high school kids would complain about their jobs and their situation and how it sucked. And I said, Hey, you know what? I'm working for the number one franchise in the world. There's got to be something I can learn here. Like what are they doing that makes them number one? And 
Mm. It's all about processes and systems and efficiencies. I saw how the kitchens were laid out and it was like process, process, fast, speed, Mm -hmm. different condiment sizes and shapes that made things a lot faster and you didn't have to look and study things to make sure them going on. You know, so I understood a lot of these things. I paid a lot of mental notes because I'm kind of weird like that. I've always fascinated with this kind of stuff. That's why I have an engineering mind, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, but later on when I went through school and I finally got a career in engineering, I had my first salary job probably back then was around $42,000 a year, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. in the mid-90s, mid-late 90s. And I felt like I was bored. I had a full-time job and you got to realize that for the period of seven years before that, I was working outdoors and construction and it gets hot here in Houston. And, yeah. and then I would go home, take a shower, go drive to school. And I'd be at the university from like 7 PM to 10 PM taking classes. And I would come home and study until 1 AM. And then I would get up at 5 AM. And so I was sleeping like three or four hours a night seven years and it was like the hustle and grind and even mm-hmm. on the weekends when i wasn't working construction i would go wait tables at the restaurants to make more money just to be able to pay for all this mm-hmm. and so i lived that 24 7 hustle and grind literally for almost a decade and it was miserable i had my health was wasn't the best and my relationships with friends and you know, girls like suffered and I was broke and I had anxiety and had more gray hair back then because I was always stressed out and probably sleep deprived mm-hmm. and living off of 99 cent cheeseburgers, like you said, like malnutrition. And, and so when I finally graduated and I had a real job and a real salary, I would get home at four 30 in the afternoon and I'd feel bored. Like what do I do the rest of the day? And yeah. I actually, put my apron back on and started picking up shifts back at the restaurant that I'd formerly was a manager at. Mm-hmm. So here I was, with an engineering degree, full-time career, you know, entry level, but I would still go wait tables every evening. And most people wouldn't do that. They would have too much yeah. ego or too much pride in doing that. But again, I grew up without money. And the question that I always had in my mind is that, Hey, Tony, are you where you want to be right now? Are you where mm-hmm. you want to be? And if the answer is no, then what are you willing to do to go get what you want and to get where you want to be? And so to me, it's like, well, dude, I can sit here on the couch and watch TV like most people, mm-hmm. or I can go to the restaurant and make a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if I did this seven nights a week, I can make $700 extra a week. I can make $2,800 a month just getting off the couch. And it's going to mm-hmm. help me to get where I, a little closer to where I want to be and be able to afford the lifestyle that I want. And so that's what I did. And it was funny, dude, because, Sometimes I'd be at the restaurant and some of the my former or my coworkers from the engineering job would see me waiting tables and they'd be shocked. Mm. They're like, Tony, like, what are you doing here? Like, you're an engineer back at the company. Like, they're factory workers and I'm like one level above them, right? I'm an engineer mm. and you know, office job and they see me with, a, with an apron on waiting tables and said, well, yeah, I, I, I used to manage here. Still have friends that are running the restaurant come in here and, and make extra money. And they're like, wow, that's impressive. You know, because Americans have a lot of ego about like, well, I'm too good to do that. And I would never do that. And like, that's not who I am, dude. I was the kid that was knocking on doors to mow yards and doing all kinds of stuff to make what I wanted. So I know looking back now, yeah, that's unusual, but I am unusual. And that's probably why I have unusual <laughs> results and I'm okay yeah. with that. But it, it's, when you're living in that moment, realize that you think it's normal, right? You think it's normal. Yeah. Then later on, 10, 20 years down the road, when you look back, you go, yeah, that was a little different, but different's good. 
know, because I could have sat on the couch, could have yeah. hung out at the bars and done what single dudes do back then, but and I wouldn't be a multimillionaire either. I'd be still doing what everybody else is doing. Yeah, yeah, that's that is so great. So, um, you know, when you were working three jobs and you were, uh, before you actually got your engineering job, you were still working three jobs and uh, you're, you didn't have good relationships with your friends. You were not enjoying, you were just, you know, hustling. You were just grinding. You were, there was something in you that kept going. And uh, what was that picture of Tony that you wanted to be at uh, back then that, you know, kept you going? I had really low goals. I mean, although I've achieved a lot and I still have a lot more to achieve, I think that it's important to understand that my goals really weren't that big because the intention to go get a degree, whether you be a, a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer, right? Those are the three they always tell you. Yeah. To go make a hundred thousand dollars a year, like go make a six-figure income, and then society will see you as successful. <laughs> yes. And no one in my family at that point had ever done that, and so I had a lot of weight carrying on my shoulders to make my parents happy and my family mm. happy that I was going to be the first one to go do that, and. Honestly, even with math, I would say I was very average at math and mm. an engineering degree. It was it was a struggle. I had to learn how to study, had to hire tutors. I had to really put in a lot of extra work to get through all the calculus and all the other math. So I basically have a, a minor in math. I have a degree in math, and I was <laughs> yeah. average at math. And yeah. my stubbornness, like you said, that like just watch me and like you're not going to doubt me, like. That stubbornness pushed me through school because I would literally be working in these chemical plants dealing with engineers on a daily basis. And some of them had no common sense. They're really what I would see is like a dumbass. They're a dumbass, <laughs> but they're an engineer. And as funny as it sounds, like what motivated me through school and things like that is like, I'll go, if that dumbass can do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. That person, if that person can do it and become successful, I can do this. Right. And so that's who I visualize. It's just kind of small thinking. And I'm sure that some of the listeners or, or viewers will relate to that because we've said stuff like that, right? So that's not a bad yeah. thing, right? It motivates yeah. you. And so I didn't think about starting this company, LS1 Tech, and like making millions of dollars. Like I didn't, like I just wanted to build a cool website for my car friends to hang out on and talk about cars and share photos about cars and how to make them faster, how to like make them look cooler and how to be a better driver or something like little like how to's and stuff is like, I just wanted a cool place. And at the time I was like, okay, I'm getting tired of waiting tables and I just want to make some side money. So I said, okay, if I go teach myself, cause I'm very creative and artistic and I like to build things. And mm. it's like, I was really fascinated with graphic design and seeing things on computer screens. It's like, I need to learn how to do that. Like, how do I make that picture? How do I make that image or that graphic or that thing? How do you do that? Like you learn Photoshop and you learn Adobe Illustrator and you learn digital photography and how to edit photos. And these are all in books. I actually still have the books that I originally bought back then. Yeah. They're still on that shelf back there from you know the, the early 2000s. And so, said, okay, I want to build web pages because I think that's kind of cool. It's like artistic. Let me figure that out. So I would I bought this book on how to code HTML. And I would read it and I would use Notepad and I would use Explorer or Yahoo to just visualize each check and I'd write it on Notepad, open it up in the browser and go, cool. It's looking, it's doing what the book says. So I, I learned really quick how to make these one to three page websites because I saw that there's a lot of companies in the early 2000s that didn't have websites. 
Mm-hmm. They had products or services that I needed. So I had this bartering system like, hey, you sell me this exhaust system for my Trans Am, I'll make you a website. You know, it's an $800 exhaust and I could build a website for them and they would just trade me. I'm like, I'm getting free car parts. It was like the sustainable <laughs> hobby, right? I was really just trading. And then I started running out of cars to modify or not needing any parts. So I was like, well, maybe I should start charging for this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I'd charge like a thousand bucks and I'd make a three page website and get it hosted for them. And I would just hold the hosting rights, right? And mm-hmm. so I built this little cool website, just wanted to go cool place to hang out. But I always treated it serious, even though it was a side business. I just said, okay, I started making good money. But by month 10, we're making about $10,000 a month profit, mm. which was wow. more than my engineering job at the time. Yeah. I said, oh, man, this is kind of like a business more than a hobby now. Like, I need to figure out what that means and how to make it better and how to do things the right way. And it wasn't until then I started thinking about what an LLC was, or what an S-Corp is, like all that mm. stuff. Like, how do you report taxes? How do you do this? How do you I mean? I had to go learn all that as I went. But the important thing there is that people think that they need all this information before they get started. And mm. what you really need to do is go get started and just learn as you go. All the best entrepreneurs I know, they just started. They just came yeah. up with a brand or a service or product. They just came up with it. They use our social media nowadays to just kind of put it out there, see the viability, the demand for the thing. They price it correct. They, they, they validate the offer before they go start to produce money or waste money building something. And then they basically just build this business. Then they go learn about LLCs and they go learn about lead. They go learn about tax and they go learn about HR and they, they kind of just grow as you go. And that's how it should be. You know, I, yeah. I think that too many people, dude, they, they fall in the trap of consumption without creation. They <laughs> want to consume podcasts. They want to consume all these books because there's a lot of books now compared to when I got started. They want to yeah. consume going to conferences and, and, and it makes them feel good. It checks boxes. I'm, I'm contributing to my knowledge base, but then you go, Hey man, you seem like a year later. Go, hey, how's business? Oh man, I'm almost there. I'm ready to get started. I'm like, dude, you said that a year ago. You said that three years ago. You said that five years ago. Like it's go get started. Don't think that you have to go make millions of dollars if you do things right, it's going yeah. to be the result. Like it shouldn't be your objective to go become a multimillionaire. It should be the result yeah. of you creating something that people actually want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much to unpack in what you said in the last five minutes. So people go back and listen. But uh, I, I just uh, uh, realized one thing. A lot of people, when we go to schools, I didn't finish my degree and all. I never went. Uh, I was wired differently or I thought different. But most of the time people go to school, they come out of it and they said, think the school is done. And that's where they get stuck because they never, um, you know, get the skills. Because what I understand in the real world, whatever is taught in the schools, maybe you can use 5%, 10% those systems as the processes, but 90% you have to learn on the job and, and if you don't know sharpen that X, you're going to get, you know, um, you're going to get um, stuck very soon. So uh, thank you for that. One last question. I know you have to drop top of the hour. So one last question. You, Tony, uh, you know, from the childhood, working those tables, uh, working hard, hustling, uh, then starting a business that he didn't know he was going to do, and which is another point. Like sometimes we focus too much on the outcomes. We miss the point of doing it. And then to going to public speaking, podcasting, 
Uh, and I'm sure you enjoyed all of those journeys, like all of those roles, different boxes. If you had to pick one uh, box, you know, that is like ultimate full, uh, fulfillment and this is, you know, where you're heading, what would that be? For me, it's always been coaching and mentoring other people. I, mm. I've always had that characteristic or desire mm. to be teacher, mentor, coach, even as a kid. I mean, I've, I've mentioned that I used to skateboard and ride BMX bikes as a kid. I'm talking like junior high and I would mm. be really excited about learning things, even if I fell on my face a hundred times to figure these tricks out. Mm. But then I would master that. And then I would get excited about teaching my friends how to do that. And mm. I think that there's the learning phase, the the involvement in becoming the master, the interest. You have to have genuine interest in something. And then you start to do the repetitions to master it. Yeah. And you have to have that succession plan. You have to pay it forward, teach other people mm. what you've achieved in order to fulfill that entire mission of what that thing is, right? Yes. I think so many people have the interest in something, but they never take the time to master it. They want instant results. They they just kind of get they move on because they're just they can't they're frustrated or it's hard or it's difficult. But if yeah. they just do the reps for a longer time and actually start to become better at what they do, now they become the master at that, do it long enough, right? It's not three months, yeah. maybe it's three years, like whatever that takes. But then they skip the succession plan. They go, okay, I know all this. It's like a trade secret. I, I'm not teaching anybody. I, they get greedy about it, right? Because they're starting to see the results. So I think there's no success without a succession plan. That's how I've always been, even in through engineering and corporate and, and waiters. And I was always the trainer. I was always the mentor. I was always taking people under my wing and coaching them, not only on their career, but their personal life and things like that. So it wasn't my duty. It wasn't my role and responsibility yeah. to do that. But I've always been that person. So me being the business coach and things like I'm doing now, it's a I've made full circle because I used to be a substitute teacher for a lot of high schools when I was in college. Oh. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed teaching kids that wanted to learn. Remember, we want to help people that raise their hand that want to be helped. Mm. I would substitute, but it would only be for advanced classes because I realized that the students that are in those advanced classes actually want to be there. Well, they actually want yeah. to learn. I didn't want to babysit kids. I wanted to teach. And mm. so I didn't want to be a teacher because I didn't want to make $36,000 for the rest of my life. Right. And so I just found ways to teach and fulfill that need of helping other people all through my corporate career. And now I do it full time, helping other people start scale and exit their businesses. So it's who I always have been. And it's what I love yes. to do. Even if I wasn't getting paid doing it, I would still enjoy doing it. Cause I, for literally like decades, I did coach some of the people that were formerly staff members of mine Mm -hmm. seven, eight and nine figure businesses. I've helped 12 other people that worked for me become millionaires over the last wow. 20 years. And mm -hmm. they were always telling me like, dude, you should be teaching this. Like you should be doing this. Like, look at these results. And I was like, Oh yeah, thank you. Thank you. But the thing dude is that kind of what you were experiencing before we fired up the camera, you're, you're realizing that like, we're evolving. You have to become the right person to go carry that message. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had childhood bullies and, I didn't feel comfortable being on camera. I didn't have, I didn't like to, I didn't like the way I sounded as a recorded voice. I didn't like being on photos. I just avoided the whole situation because yeah. I've got a skin condition where it's vitiligo, where I've, I'm covered with white spots on my face and hands and my legs. And so I got made fun of as a kid, you know, like, like why do you have all these spots all over you? Like what's wrong with you? 
And I just learned that I can be successful because I'm ultra competitive. I can be successful in the background. I don't have to be the hero. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can build companies and hide behind the logo. I can write books and hide behind the title. You know, I can do all these things without being in the spotlight. And I avoided that for 40 years of my life, right? Mm-hmm. And then in 2015, I was in, in, a, in a car accident racing cars. And it was a near-death experience where I hit a concrete wall at the track at 130 miles per hour. And oh. as I was approaching the wall, I said to myself, well, here I go. And yeah. it was an overwhelming sense of peacefulness in that moment. I felt like, here I go. Like, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die here. And, of course, I survived, had no major injuries. And, and that really shifted my perspectives. And that was 2015. I actually you know, was on the middle of a layoff in our industry, oil and gas. And I got laid off from Chevron. I was staffed there. And I said, you know what? I don't ever want to come back to this industry. You know, I've been 20 plus years in this industry, highly compensated, multiple six figure mm-hmm. earner. And I just walked away from it forever. And people thought I was crazy. And they're like, you know, how do you, how do you walk away for 20 years and $240,000 salary? How do you walk away from that? You know, you just give it up. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? And I said, I need to go create more impact in this world. I didn't yeah. know what that meant. And it took me about two more years of figuring out what did that actually mean and how am I going to best impact this world? And the answer for me just came down to what are the things I have passion for? Well, I love cars and all of my businesses prior to that were automotive, racing, performance, communities, things like that, retail. And I said, okay, I'm going to go teach people how I have these cars. I'm going to teach people how I've helped other people start and scale and exit businesses. I'm going to go teach that side of it. Yeah. And that's what I do now with 365 Driven. I'm a community builder. I built massive communities in the automotive space, up to 500,000 total members. So I'm going to go build a community for business owners with millions of members. That's how I'm going to impact this world. Everybody's got a different way to impact their world, but you should do some soul searching to figure out what's the best way for you to impact the world and go after that. And after that accident, I had no more excuses. I say, hey, I could have died and all of my attention, my love, my knowledge, all that would have disappeared with me. Mm -hmm. It would have just been gone. And so I had to go ahead and put my purpose ahead of my fear and get really uncomfortable to become the right person to do what I do today. And that required hiring a speaking coach. I know that you've worked with Christy and we do these things that are not comfortable because we realize that we are not the right people yet to go create the impact that we truly desire. So Nothing in life comes easy. Everything worth having takes effort and work and time and attention and investment to go do that. But mm. now I'm on that journey. I'm only in year four of what I'm doing. A lot of people see what I'm doing. They think I've been doing this for 10 years. Like, dude, I'm only on year four. It's because <laughs> I outwork people. and I outlast people. I just yeah. put in the work. Amazing. That was brilliant. And I'm so grateful like you survived you survived for a reason you had to make this impact you had to share uh i want people to go uh check out 365driven.com reach out to you because i know you're a mentor i know the first time we met i asked you a question and i don't know if you remember i asked you that i i told you that i was thinking to start podcast and you you didn't know me but you said just remember, be consistent. The only tip I can give you is be consistent. And months later, I'm here and, you know, it is off your tip. And so thank you very much for your time. I know this would be 
a lot of value for people to go listen. There are so many nuggets there. And I am just so grateful that I know you, Tony, for uh, not just because you're doing this, but because of the person you stand for something every day. I see on Facebook what you stand for, the community you're building. And I know you're going to make a lot of big difference. Uh, so thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And those are kind words. And I, and I don't want to let people down. I mean, I hold myself to a high standard. And, dude, I'm I'm proud of you for taking the action, man. It's, it's good to watch and I know this is the early phases of things being public for you, but it's going to be really fun to watch two, three, four years down the road, what mm. you become and how you evolve and how you improve. And when you look back on these early pieces of content, you're going to realize that you come a long way and that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. And if you liked it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast Make sure you leave your comments, really important that you let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, what would you like to listen to more. If you like what you listen, check out other episodes. They're exactly what you need from different guests, different strategies. And I'll see you on the next episode. Till then, like, subscribe, and do leave me comments. Thank you.